At the outset here, I want to tell you that these sermons the last three weeks were written and formed in conjunction with three people, our guest pastor last week from Colonial Presbyterian, Greg Ely, and Seth Davidson and myself. These were written before the election, before October was even over. All right, that was my attempt at like one of those pharmaceutical ad disclaimers. I took a tiny breath before that last sentence. I'm so disappointed in myself. Yeah. Well, hey, if you didn't hear that, which you probably didn't, uh, what I just expressed was the fact that these three sermons, last two weeks and this week, were all written before Halloween. <laughs> and we just wanted to seek the Lord, ask him what he wanted to say to us in the, the three weeks after November 3rd, uh, and just present that. Uh, and so they, uh, that's what they represent, um, and I'm excited to share with you today uh, what I've discovered, what our team has discovered as we've just encountered Jesus. Jesus takes his followers on a roadie, this road trip that is away from home for them. I want to show you this place on a map. Caesarea Philippi is the name of the place. Uh, and it's not, it's not a place they're comfortable with or being in. And on the road trip, once they get there, they're visiting villages. He asks them a couple questions. He says, who do people say that I am? And he follows that up with, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Looking directly at his disciples. These are existential questions about your identity, right? They're questions that we've all asked about ourselves. We generally begin asking them in early adolescence and and that question doesn't go away, right? As adults, we're still asking, who am I? What do people think of me? And, And hopefully that question, the audience of that question matters more as we get older and it's really important for a select few people that we, we care what they think about us and not the masses. But Jesus is asking this vulnerable question and it's, it's essentially, he's getting polling data on his identity. Like what's the buzz? It's not because he's confused. Jesus is not confused about his identity, but he is curious about what other people are saying. And most importantly, he wants to know what his friends believe. But you, what about you? Who do you say that I am? I mean, imagine asking your friends that question, gathering your besties and asking them, guys, be real with me. Like, what do people think of me? Like, tell me, tell me what they're really saying when I'm not around. <laughs> the stuff I don't hear. Come on, give it to me. I can handle it. I don't know that we all could handle it. If they, his disciples, tell him the truth, it could hurt because frankly, he's not polling great everywhere. <laughs> People are impressed by Jesus, many of them following him, but many more still wondering where to file this guy that says he's the son of God. In this story today, Jesus has taken them on this road trip uh, and they're in Caesarea Philippi, Philippi. And in one sense, it's a place that's kind of like Vegas. Okay, so it's not like Vegas because it's Caesarea Philippi 2,000 years ago. All right, so no lights, no casinos, no buffets, like none of that. But it is in the sense that there's a lot of options here in Caesarea Philippi. Just the name itself, if you'll catch it, Caesar is in Caesarea. And what that meant was Caesar, the divine leader of the Roman Empire, said, I want people to know when they are in Caesarea Philippi that it's named such for a reason. Because I'm the God, I'm the divine one that this world revolves around. And not just that, but there was a Greek God, Pan, Pan the God of fertility and sexuality and idols to the Greek God Pan were everywhere in Caesarea Philippi. 
Jesus has taken them away from their homeland. They feel like fish out of water. And this is just where the kingdom of God's message is going next. They're in Vegas and they feel it. You know that feeling when you're like, I got to take a bath just to like rinse Vegas off of me. They feel the conflicted religious nature of the physical place that they're in. I don't know what that was. Let's hope it doesn't happen again. There are gods of pleasure, wealth, and power. And those options are present in Caesarea Philippi as well as Vegas and 2020 Johnson County. So I want to take you to the moment. And this, you got a track here because this conversation starts with Jesus and his disciples. And then it gets focused because he wants to know what the crowd thinks, but then really what they think about him. And the crowd begins to grow in these concentric circles. So Mark chapter 8, verse 29 or 27 Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Essentially, people think you're a prophet, one of the old ones or the new ones or a reincarnated one. They don't know where to, where to put you, Jesus. They just have ideas about who you could be. And then Jesus cuts through all the stuff, all their answers and zooms in on them and just says, what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter, the spokesperson for the disciples generally speaks up and says, you are the Messiah. Peter's answer, Messiah is a gold star one. It's the right answer. Messiah meant the anointed one, God's saving king that was going to be sent. People were waiting for the Messiah. For generations, they were waiting for a hero to come and save God's people. Jesus knows, though, that Peter and the disciples have this definition of Messiah that he's got to, like, overhaul and rework and really help them understand what it means. They had in their mind a Messiah who would overthrow the Roman oppression that they lived under. They had in their mind a couple messianic figures that had come along that were all dead because they said they were going to overthrow Rome and Rome didn't like that. And just after Jesus' life and the decades after, there were more messiahs to come that were all dead. And so they had in their mind this idea that a messiah is going to save us. He's going to take swords and daggers and take out the Roman empire. There was even a, a political group. The zealots is who they were called. Here's how the historian Josephus describes them. Their movement could also be called a violent religious revolutionary one. The historian Josephus also speaks of the zealots as one of these several Jewish revolutionary factions. One, he says, was a coalition of bandits and miscreants who fought between themselves and against the Romans in the Judeo-Roman War, AD 66 to 70. Jesus has 12 disciples and one of them is Simon the Zealot. They're not all 12 like taking up daggers, but Jesus has recruited one of them to follow him who believes that this violent overthrow is the way the Messiah will operate. Because his disciples didn't get that, and I want you to hear this, that Jesus came for more, much more than that. His rescue mission didn't include a group, a nation of overtaxed, oppressed people that lived 2,000 years ago. His mission began the restoration of the world and all who would ever live in it. Past, present, and future. That's what Jesus' mission was. His disciples didn't get that. 
and he had to explain it to them. Some of them thought the Messiah was literally going to go to war and start kicking butt. Jesus says it's going to be the opposite, actually. He goes on to tell them. And so now he says, the son of man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. And as he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Peter got the right answer earlier, Messiah. And now though, after hearing what Jesus thinks the Messiah is, all this talk of death and dying, Peter flips. Jesus has apparently pushed a button on Peter. And he reprimands Jesus. He goes off on Jesus. <laughs> How about that? Reprimanding Jesus. It's a good band name. Maybe not. Punk rock is what it would be, right? What would possess a person to reprimand their leader? Jesus even. What would possess a person to do that? Well, I'm sure a variety of things, but one thing that I know would is a tightly held definition of Messiah. Someone that's got their vice grips on this idea of a Messiah and can't see it any other way. The story continues in Jesus' response. This is like maybe one of the most tense, most awkward personal interactions in the Bible because here's what Jesus says in Mark 8, 33. He turned around and looked at now his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan. He said, you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not God's, not from God's. Jesus offers a reprimand right back. He looks at all his disciples and offers this scathing word. Now, he's not renaming Peter to Satan. Look, don't be confused. He's not like giving Peter a new name, but he's identifying that Peter's reprimand of him has given weight to an option that is not supposed to be on the table. And namely, this idea that, hey, maybe as Messiah, you don't have to walk this road of suffering and death and dying that God has called you to walk. Immediately, Jesus recognizes that this battle is a spiritual one. That's, I think, why he says Satan. He says, there is something entering the picture, the minds of my disciples, that takes this plan, this rescue plan off course, that takes the cross off the table, and that is not okay. And I got to call that out in my disciples so that they know that this path of suffering is the one that God has called me to. And this is the only way, the cross is the only way that the world can be restored. Jesus came for much more than what the disciples thought. And so much more than you and I think. For them, Jesus' rescue mission, like I said earlier, didn't just include a nation of overtaxed, oppressed people. For me, personally, Jesus' rescue mission, this incarnation, this thing Jesus did on planet Earth, gets re rather small when I reduce it to, there's a situation in my life that I need help for so that I can feel good. And I do that sometimes. I reduce Jesus to like something that helps me in like my problem. Uh, for you, I'm wondering if you've fallen prey to the same temptations that Jesus' disciples did. The same one that I have. For us, when we reduce Jesus as Messiah to what the disciples did, nationalistic improvement, 
This could be American ideals, political aspirations. And that temptation for us could be many things, but one of them is, to be honest, just a candidate that was going to rescue. Followers of Jesus have become embroiled in bitter, name-calling, hate-filled, divisive season. And many have attached our hopes of victory to a candidate. We didn't call President Trump or President-elect Biden Messiah. But we expected some of those things from them, didn't we? We expected that one of them would save us from some kind of certain peril. Author Ed Stetzer writes about this time we live in in a really unique way. He says this, the church stands no hope of engaging the age of outrage unless we root out the lie that the solution to sin lies anywhere outside the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. 1 John 5, 20, salvation is not coming on Air Force One and Jesus will not come riding on a donkey or an elephant. Those who fail to see such things have been lost to the idolatry of the moment. It's from a book called Christians in the Age of Outrage. How to Live in the Age of Outrage. It's a really helpful read. For me, the idea that Jesus exists for my problems is rather self-centered. For us, like the disciples, to reduce Jesus to nationalistic ideals is rather nation-centered. Something the disciples did and Jesus called them out for. And the question is, how do we resolve these shortcomings? If the Messiah means this, and we're like missing the mark on what Messiah means, how do we resolve those shortcomings? And it's by looking up at Jesus, who is mission-centered. Jesus is, in fact, you-centered. Fill in the blank, your name. He's you-centered times all the people that have ever lived in the history of the world. That's what helps me resolve my gap between what Jesus means by Messiah. So we're back in our story in Caesarea Philippi. Remember, there's been the reprimand, the back and forth. Peter and Jesus have had the really awkward moment. And now Jesus has something else to say. He calls the whole crowd, anyone within earshot. He says, this was a discipling conversation between me and my crew. But now everyone who can hear me gather in because I have something to say to you. And he gives one of the hardest, most challenging teachings in the Bible. I've been wrestling with this since I was in college. I understand it and don't understand it simultaneously. And Jesus says this, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus. They weren't supposed to carry the same wooden beams that Jesus carried. Not all of them. Some of them would. And you and I will not carry the wooden beams that Jesus carried. But there is something that God wants us to carry in this life. And follow Jesus all the way to that place of self-sacrifice. For Jesus, it means I'm serving all. I'm not serving myself. Self-preservation is not my goal. I'm going to suffer I want to teach you the way of serving and suffering. And to the crowds, you all thought the sword was the game plan. But suffering is my game plan to get this, to this restoration that God wants to do. In this moment, Jesus is inviting the people listening to him to follow him all the way to the cross by becoming a servant. There's this beautiful song by uh, Don Schaefer. 
It's called a good, good end. I'm gonna read a stanza of it to you. It's a long, hard road with a good, good end. And if I keep on walking past the crooked bend, I will meet my maker, I will meet my friend. It's a long, hard road with a good, good end. A long, hard road with a good, good end. To be honest, I want a short, easy road with an awesome end. A long road, a hard road, that sounds a lot like 2020 to me. (laughs) A good, good end, though, is what Jesus promises in this final verse that we read today. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And that's the question I want to invite and challenge you with today. It's not my challenge, but it's the question Jesus asks his disciples. And it's Jesus speaking to us today, and he zeroes in on you and I and just says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? He doesn't doesn't really care about the rest of culture, but he really cares about what you say about who he is. And context matters. It's not Vegas or Caesarea Philippi, but the question has context, right? And our context is 2020. In the light of 2020, who do you say that Jesus is? Is he in control when the world is seemingly out of control? Is he wise when the world is seemingly unwise? Is he trustworthy even though he allowed to happen what happened this year to you and to I? How will you answer those questions? Next week, we're gonna get to hear from a good friend of Heartland's and mine, a guy named Dylan Mortimer. Dylan Mortimer has had two double lung transplants. <laughs> he's a friend of ours. He spoke here just at the, uh, in the fourth quarter of, of 2019 and he's coming back. He wants to share just uh, some more updates and encourage us, bring hope to us. And I can't wait for you to hear his story of hope and encouragement. He's a guy that has answered this question. Who are you, Jesus, to me? But the question for you and I is, how will you answer that question today? I'm gonna invite the band up in just a moment and really give us a chance to reflect on that. A chance to re-up on Jesus today, to take his question seriously and to answer it honestly, to have your answer even reshaped by Jesus for him to bring a little bit of heat like he did to Peter and say, you think it's this, but let me tell you what this means. So would you do this? Would you look up to the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus? Right now in the moment, I want you to uh, think about and consider doing something physical. For me, when I do something physical, it kind of leads my spirit along. (laughs) Sometimes it's the other way where something happens inside and my body just goes, yes, like a chief's touchdown or like something happens inside and I react outwardly. But other times I direct my spirit and just say, hey, we're having a hard time being thankful grateful, surrendering right now. And so we need to do something. We need to do something to to get the spirit part of me to think in a different way. And so whether you're watching at home or here in the room, I want us to end our time by changing our physical posture somehow. I wanna give you some options here and anything you choose is the right option. That could mean lowering yourself to your knees. 
It could mean bowing your head down in respect and reverence. It could mean simply opening up your hands in your lap, palms up, showing God that you come to him empty-handed. It could mean that you lay down on the floor. For those of you at home, you know when you vacuumed last. (laughs) It might be easier for you. It could mean lifting your head and turning your gaze upward, picturing the skies, the clouds, and beyond that, God in heaven with his son sitting at his right hand, looking down, us looking up, garnering all the strength that just looking up does. Whatever you choose, it's the right posture. As you do that, I'm gonna give us just a short bit of silence and invite you to pray with me. I'm gonna read that prayer that I'm gonna read again after the silence in just a moment, but here's the prayer. And then I'll give you some silence to answer the question that Jesus is asking. What about you? Who do you say that I am? God, today I want to tell you who you are to me. I confess like the disciples, I've had my own view of you that isn't accurate. I confess that my sin gets in the way of me seeing you for who you really are. Forgive me for that. Today I choose to look up and put my hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen. God, today I want to tell you who you are to me. I confess like the disciples, I've had my own view of you that is not accurate. I confess that my sin gets in the way of me seeing you for who you really are. Forgive me for that. Today I choose to look up and put my hope in you. In your name, Jesus, I pray, amen. Hey, that, uh, that 30 seconds, that few seconds of quiet is what I love to call a holy moment. <laughs> Everything kind of slips away. It's you and God. And it's actually, it's actually what you need later this week too. It's what you need later this evening. When everything's like frantic and your family gatherings this week feel like they're up in the air and there's discord. What you need, what you need is really a closet. This is the advice Jesus says, he just gave, so go into your closet, close the door and just pray. And prayer isn't like eloquent words, but in this moment for us, prayer was a physical gesture 
and some quiet. And it's in those moments that God fuels us for the interactions in the world. And so for some of you, that was the moment of surrender. That was the moment where you just, whatever you chose physically, it started communicating to your spirit man, spirit woman. I know that's a weird term, but we just kind of have like a spirit part of us. And when you did that, something started to happen. You felt yourself like one with God's presence. So that, this has been fun. Like, I know it's not the kind of fun, like world's a fun fun, <laughs> but it's a fun that actually drives your roots deeper into the ground. It's been really challenging for me to interact with this passage and for you, I trust too, but fun and growing and challenging in a unique way. If you did something today to look up towards Jesus, if something like in your moment of physical and the spirit inside of you surrendering, we want to know. Like we, we want to celebrate. We want to like mark that moment. We want to say, how do we figure out how to give our life to Jesus again tomorrow? Wholehearted surrender. We'll be in the virtual hub. If you're online, we'll be in the physical hub here down front. We want to be in it with you. We'll see you in those places, in the hubs, on site or online. And just wishing you a really full week, a really beautiful week in the midst of a challenging Thanksgiving, that our hearts, that our roots would grow deeper into God's presence. Thanks for being here today. We love you and we'll see you soon.